How are you guys doing this morning? Good. It's wonderful to see you all. Happy Sunday. What a beautiful morning it is. Man, I'm so, I'm so glad that it's springtime. Um, we are going to continue in our series going through Psalms today, so I hope you guys are ready for that. Um, real quick, just uh, want to do a, a quick reminder from last week, uh, Johnny gave a, an announcement letting us know that uh, we still have lots of uh, space. We need, we need volunteers for people to help with Vineyard Kids. And so uh, we got a few people who signed up, which is so awesome, but there's still more needs. So uh, you still have an opportunity to sign up to be a part of Vineyard Kids. We'd love to get you plugged in. So, um, and then we have other jobs that we could really use some help with as well, uh, particularly in the tech team. So if you're looking for a spot to be able to fill in, maybe behind the scenes, the tech team could use your help. No experience needed. We will train you. All right. Psalms, the language of prayer. This, this spring, we are spending uh, several weeks kind of just digging into some of our favorite psalms. And the, the goal of this series is not to exegete, you know, each of the psalms and sort of pull them apart so that we can really understand all of the meaning behind everything that we read, but actually to just sort of immerse ourselves in the language of the poetry that is in the Bible to teach us how we can express ourselves to God. The Psalms are ancient Hebrew poetry, and they, they're sort of a, a striking collision between what is holy and what is deeply human. Have you ever noticed that? Like, it's just... Um, it's just all the raw, gritty stuff of the human life mixed up with all of the beauty and wonder and holiness of God. They express the entire spectrum of human emotion and experience. They're about joy and loss. They're about grief and celebration, doubt and trust, fear and security. And the poems are at times like fiery hot with anger and at the same time, just dripping with longing and love for God. They are kind of over the top. Have you ever felt like that when you're reading the poems? Like, they're just like, who feels this much about anything? Um, I do. <laughs> uh, pretty emotional at times myself. But in, in a sense, the, the Psalms give us permission to express the deepest things that are in our hearts to God uh, without feeling like we need to censor ourselves which is really good news for somebody like me, that God is not easily scandalized. And so today we are going to spend some time looking at one of my favorite psalms, which is Psalm 51. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Psalm 51. If you grab one of the pew Bibles in front of you, the page number is 474. And this is a psalm that is written by a guy named King David at one of the darkest moments of his entire life. So while you're flipping there, I'm going to pray real quick and we'll kind of dive in. Jesus, we welcome you here into this room. We thank you, Lord, Lord Jesus, that you are a human that is acquainted with every experience and feeling that each and every one of us feels and experiences. You are a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. You are a man of great joy. You are a man of hot passion and, and fiery anger even at times. Lord, you are, a, you are a man who loved deeply. And so we just want to follow you in how we learn how to relate to the Father. Lead us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Before we get into the psalm, uh, I want to share just with you, share the, the backstory of kind of what's going on here uh, uh, that, as, as David is writing. If you're new to the Bible, hundreds of years before Jesus arrived on the scene, there was a guy named David, and he became the king of Israel. When David was a kid, he was the youngest of seven brothers, and he was a shepherd. And so he was kind of out in obscurity, out in the fields with sheep, and he was a musician and a poet as well. So he would be basically learning how to sing by singing to the sheep, and he was a protector. Um, a few years later, he, uh, when, when he becomes sort of a youngish, like a boy adult, somewhere in there, teenager probably, um, we hear the, the famous story of how he, sl- he slayed a giant named Goliath. And when he did that, he uh, received his reward, which was to become the then king's son-in-law. And so this king, his name is King Saul, uh, he takes David into his household, but then he becomes enraged and jealous against David. Uh, many surmise that he, was, that he like, had a demon that came into his life that, that just created that conflict. Uh, maybe he had this like, extreme depression, anxiety, mental illness. Um, but in any case, he became fixated on one thing, which is to murder his son-in-law, David. So for years, David was out in the wilderness, going from town to town, hiding and fleeing from King Saul. And during that time, he was writing poems about like, why, where are you, God? Why is this happening to me? I thought that I was supposed to be king. I thought that you gave me this right. Well, then in due time, uh, in battle, King Saul was eventually killed, and David was finally and fully anointed as the king of Israel. And he was incredibly successful. He was a really good king. He would lead Israel out into battle against all of their enemies, and he would defeat all of their enemies. They saw over and over again these powerful nations around them were being subdued by the power of God. Beyond that, he also also, uh, uh, built up Jerusalem as a city, as the capital city of Israel. Uh, He established the tabernacle with singers and musicians that were worshiping Yahweh day and night. He was doing the, he was just incredible. He was doing the stuff that, like, everything that God wanted. And so David then became known as a man after his own heart, a good king. And yet, in his middle years, most scholars believe that in his early 40s, uh, after walking for years and years really closely with God, his whole life, and after seeing the provision of God over and over again, David falls into what most of us would consider to be unimaginable sin. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read a story about David and a woman named Bathsheba. So what's happening in 2 Samuel 11 is that David, after having all of this military uh, victory, it, it came time, the season where kings would take their armies to go out into battle again, And David decided, you know, I've done that for a while. I'm going to go ahead and sit this one out. So he sends all of his men, all of the men of his city, they leave Jerusalem and they go out into battle. And he stays behind in his palace. And one evening, he's up on his roof looking out over the city that he, along with God's help, had built and enjoying it. He looks down and he spies a woman who is out in her courtyard bathing herself. And she is beautiful. And David, 
He then asks his attendants, his servants, to find out who this woman was. And they said, her name is Bathsheba, and she is the wife of one of your soldiers, a guy named Uriah. And he says, oh, okay, I want you to get her and bring her to me. So these servants, they go, they find Bathsheba, they bring her to David, and then the two of them sleep together. And I want to be very clear about this. This was in no way a good thing. (laughs) just in case that's unclear. Um, David was married. Bathsheba was married. David held a power dynamic as the king. This is coercive. This is evil. And shortly after this, David receives word from Bathsheba that she's pregnant with his baby. And remember, because this happened while all of the rest of the men of the city were out fighting David's war. So David... In an attempt to cover this up, he sends for Uriah, her husband, to come back from battle so that he could have dinner with him. And he gets Uriah really drunk and sends him back to his house so that he could spend some quality time with his wife. But Uriah is such a noble and honorable man that he says, far be it from me to go and enjoy time with my wife when the rest of my fellow soldiers are out on the battlefield. And he refuses to be intimate with her. And, uh, and so, um, so this, this attempted cover-up, it totally failed. And so David had to move on to plan B. And so what he does is he writes a letter to his generals out in the army, and he sends it with Uriah, and he says, okay, when you guys approach to go fight this next battle against these enemies, I want you to put Uriah right at front and center, right at the very front lines. I want you to march out like you're going to fight, and then right at the last minute, I want you to draw back and leave Uriah totally exposed to be slayed by the enemy. And he takes that letter and he actually sends it with Uriah. Uriah is carrying his own death note out back into battle to fight David's war. And sure enough, Uriah is killed. And then David, he marries Bathsheba and he made her one of his wives. And he thinks he gets away with it until God sends a prophet named Nathan. And Nathan shows up. And he says, David, you have done something that is horrifically evil in God's sight, and God is not going to let you get away with it. And Nathan announces to David that the child that he and Bathsheba had conceived and that she had born was going to die. And this sends David into this moment of like extreme clarity. All of a sudden, he snapped out of his fog of sin and he sees it for what, he is, what it is. And he begins to fast and pray and cry out to God for mercy. But seven days later, the child dies. And it is in this, the darkest moment of David's life, that he pens this psalm. Let's read it together. This is from the NIV. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb, and you taught me wisdom in that secret place. 
Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring that. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, O God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion and to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Selah. So the question is, how did David get here? How could this guy who is described by God himself as a man after God's own heart end up committing such unimaginable sin? When you read the Psalms, all the Psalms that David wrote, they are full of language of intimacy and closeness. It indicates that David had a very deep and personal walk with the Lord. See, though David loved God, he had unchecked blind spots in his character that grew under the pressure of leadership. And we have seen this same thing happen countless times in men and women in the church who are in church leadership. Amen? Many of us have been wounded even at least vicariously through the fall of men and women that we have esteemed as being incredible leaders in the body of Christ. People who you think this could never happen to, and then they fall into this moral failure, and they crush all of the people around you. It's so common that it's no longer shocking, and it grieves my heart every single time. It's happened, it seems like a half dozen times just this year alone. There's this great story of a pastor going to visit uh, Jim Baker when he was in prison. How many of you know who I'm talking about when I say the word name Jim Baker? Okay, a handful. That's pretty impressive, guys. This was a long time ago. Uh, this is Jim Baker and, uh, and Tammy Faye. Tammy Faye was famous for wearing way too much makeup that wasn't waterproof and turned into clown makeup as she cried. Um, and they were televangelists in the 70s and 80s, and their influence was massive. They hosted a TV show together, and they developed even a Christian theme park. (laughs) I didn't know about that until I did this research. Pretty amazing. But in the late 80s, after this really fruitful ministry, it was discovered that hush money payments had been made to Jim Baker's church secretary to cover up an alleged rape. And during the investigation, things just got worse and worse and worse. And they uncovered widespread and massive uh, uh, money fraud. And Jim ended up going to prison. 
And so while he was in prison, a pastor named John, v- John Bevere went to visit him to ask him some very hard questions. And this is what John wrote uh, in one of the books that he, read, he wrote. He said, after he had talked for a while, I felt like I wanted to ask him some questions. The first question I asked was, Jim, when did you fall out of love with Jesus? When did you stop loving Jesus? Was it when you committed adultery with Jessica Hahn seven years before you got thrown into prison? Was it the fraud? When did it really happen? Because I remember he was so on fire for God in the earlier years. He looked at me and said, John, I didn't. I said, what do you mean you didn't? He said, I didn't fall out of love with Jesus. I loved him all the way through it. And then he, and then he saw a total bewilderment on my face. I said, what do you mean? He said, John, I loved Jesus, but I didn't fear God. There are millions of Christians in America who love Jesus but don't fear him. And it is the fear of the Lord that perfects holiness in our life. I loved Jesus. I just didn't fear God. You see, it's possible to live a life of deep affection for Jesus while also letting sin creep in and destroy you. It is possible to love Jesus and not fear God. And this is an insidious and horrific self-deception. And it's not just reserved for those who are powerful. Sin is a blinder for us. Sin blinds our self-awareness. And what it looks like, we begin to rationalize our own behavior. We diminish the wrongs that we participate in. We fail to recognize our own complicity within systems that oppress other people or affect the marginalized and the weak in our world. And it mars our souls. We deny our true intentions. We forget the wrongs that we've committed while holding on to and clinging fast to all of the offenses that have been committed against us. And then we say things like, yeah, maybe I did this thing that was wrong, but I'm not a bad person. Like, yeah, I did this, but I'm not really bad. You see, sin keeps us from recognizing our own character, not seeing our own faults. It blinds us. And I believe that our greatest need isn't salvation from where we might end up, but from who we might become. We need to be saved daily from the stuff that is happening within us. You see, it's hard to get enough of something that seems like it almost works for us. Like sex, it almost works, but it doesn't quite. Or alcohol, it helps until it doesn't. It's success, it brings us this feeling of meaning until it fails us. Or money, or security, or Instagram likes, whatever your thing is. You see, sin works to give us just enough of what we're longing for while blinding us to the reality of what is happening inside of our hearts as we give ourselves to it. I love how Richard Foster puts it. He says, sin is ultimately an attempt to fill our need for God with everything but God. 
Sin is so much more than just the things that we do. During Jesus' ministry, he was ruthless and relentless in his commitment to not just address people's behaviors, but to get all the way down to people's heart issues that were oriented away from God. For Jesus, it wasn't just about our behavior. It was about our entire life's orientation. In the vineyard, we often talk about this framework kind of called the the bounded set model versus a centered set model when we think about what it means to follow Jesus as his disciples. It's distinguishing between sort of an insider-outsider way of thinking versus an entire orientation of life. Now, so I'm going to show you a little bit about what I mean by bounded set versus centered set, and I want to be clear about something really quick. If you have any confusion about what I'm saying in this, come and ask me about it. Because I taught about it a couple of years ago, and it like some people really misunderstood what I said, and it became a thing. So if it's becoming a thing for you, just come and ask me about it, okay? Okay? All right. All right, good, good. So a bounded set model. A bounded set model, uh, you're determining whether somebody is an insider or an outsider by carefully defining the boundary. How close are you to the edge? Are you within the group or are you outside of the group? And in a salvation sense, what we're saying is, what are the requirements to go from being an outsider to become an insider? What is the threshold that you have to cross to be securely on the inside of God's kingdom? And Christians love to define those boundaries in lots of different ways uh, and really trying to make it clear. You're either in or you're out. So, you know, if you've said the correct prayer or you've been baptized or you affirm specific right beliefs or if you practice right behaviors, that's how we determine whether somebody is inside or outside. And anyone who hasn't done the correct ritual or believed the right beliefs is by definition an outsider. How many of you feel like that is like totally the framework that you have grown up in and been a part of? I would say probably everybody in this room has been given some version of that. Uh, That's what I grew up in. Um, But another way to look at kind of the life with Jesus is the centered set model. And this is how we define it in the vineyard. A centered set means that people are defined not by where they are in relation to the border, but rather by their orientation towards the center. What matters is where are you moving Where are you going? A centered set describes the life of discipleship. It's it's about orienting all of life according to the center, which is Jesus. You see, center, and this doesn't make everything subjective. It's not relativism or vague, loose theology. It's just simply uh, defined in relation to what's happening at the center rather than what's happening at the boundary. Now, that said, we do believe in regeneration. We do believe that at some point God saves your soul. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You are made whole. You are made new. But here's the thing. As a pastor, I have no idea who has actually had that happen in their life. I can use my best judgment and guess. But Jesus, when he came in and he came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God— He never came in to give a clear definitional boundary that you have to cross into. He just said at every point, you're going the right or you're going the wrong way. And this offended religious people who thought they were so comfortably on the inside. And Jesus would look at them and say, guys, you are going the wrong direction. 
you aren't oriented in the right way. And then he would look at people who everybody was in agreement with. They are so far from God, prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners and the evil. And he would look at them and say, you guys are like not far from the kingdom. You're going the right way. Like as you turn to Jesus, you're turning towards the kingdom of God. Why am I talking about this? Good question. Jesus' mission wasn't primarily to get people over the line. It was to change the orientation of their lives. It was about introducing them to a new way of living, living in the kingdom of God. And for guys like Jim Baker or King David or countless other people, they easily figured themselves to be comfortable insiders because of their very real history with God. And yet the warnings that Jesus would, cry, would call out to them was, you're not moving the right direction, guys. You're allowing yourselves to drift away from the center. And the thing that happens with drift is that drift, the further you drift, the quieter the voice of Jesus just kind of sounds. It's harder and harder to hear him when you're way out here. And what the Bible clearly teaches us is that any drift that is not, any drift away from Jesus is inherently a drift towards destruction. And so turning back to the center is all about dethroning whatever it is that has sort of become our new center of gravity and enthroning Jesus in our hearts. It's what the Bible calls repentance. Now, the Greek word for repentance in the Bible is the word metanoia, And its literal translation is to change your thinking, to make a decision to turn around, to face a new direction. To repent is to change the direction that you're walking in. You're going this direction, and repenting is saying, nope, I need to go back this direction. It's a total reorientation. John Tyson defined repentance as a total change of mind leading to a total change of life. And Psalm 51, this language right in front of us, is King David's repentance. And it's not just an apology for the wrong things that got him into this specific, you know, hot water that he's in. But if you read the words of his psalm, he's acknowledging and crying out for mercy for the entire arc of his life that has led him to excuse this and excuse this and excuse this and allow this to grow till it, be, till it came to full fruition in the destruction that he found himself in that moment. He owns the entire thing. So let's spend the rest of our time looking at the language of uh, Psalm 51. When you come to the end of yourself, when you recognize that everything that you have been oriented toward is not leading you to life, but rather to destruction, how do you repent? What do you say? What is the language that you start with? The first thing that David starts with is actually God's character and his love. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Jesus starts his repentance with who God is, not with how jacked up he is. He says, according to your unfailing love and your great compassion, David doesn't appeal to his worthiness based on his own merits, nor does he excuse, you know, what he had done. He roots himself in the character of God. 
David knows that he can come to God and that he doesn't need to be fearful that God is a God of wrath who is hell-bent on destroying him. That's sin's job, not God's. God is the God of unfailing love. God is full of compassion. You see, theology really matters. Who you perceive God to be will determine how you approach him when you find yourself in this pain and brokenness. If you perceive God as the one who is just hell-bent and determined to destroy everyone who steps out of line a little bit, you will never run to him. But if you see him as the loving father who is the only hope to get you out of the destruction that sin is causing in your life and will ultimately cause you in final judgment, you run to God as your father. You run to him as the one who just wants to embrace you, heal you, restore you, forgive you, wash you, and make you new and clean. He's gentle and kind and full of mercy. He's the father that we can run to for restoration rather than the father that we hide from in fear. But David moves beyond God's character and he actually does acknowledge his guilt. He recognizes that even though God is kind, David is still guilty. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. He's saying, I know my sin. I get it. It's always right in front of my face. I try to hide myself from it. I try to stuff it down. I try to minimize it and make it not a thing. But it's always right here in front of me. I want to pretend like it's nothing, but you are too holy and you are too just and you are too loving to leave me to my own destruction. Rooted in God's character, David can acknowledge his sin and his guilt head on. He doesn't minimize or excuse. He brings it to God and he says, this is real. Can you, can you, oh God, help me with it? And then look at verse seven. This is where it gets really intense. In the ESV, it's translated, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. When David cries out to God, cleanse me, purge me with hyssop, he is using visceral language right here. You see, in the ancient world, lye, which soap is made out of, actually comes from the hyssop plant. And um, as we know from the movie Fight Club, uh, lye can really burn your skin if it's not turned into proper soap. And so what David is saying here is he's talking about, when he's talking about hyssop, he is crying out to God to cleanse him, to burn the hell out of him. He's saying, here is my sin. I need you to burn it out every last little bit. And it's important for us to understand that the purging that God does when he is cleansing us from our sin, this is not punishment for our sin. You see, Jesus already bore all of that on the cross. God doesn't come to punish you for stepping out of line. But purging is not punitive, but it is often painful because sin latches onto you. It gets its hooks in you. And, and when you're trying to remove it or deal with it, it often feels like you are tearing something out of yourself. You see, God's cleansing is having the hell burned out of you. David knows that his sin runs deep and this thing has to be dealt with at a root level. It's not gonna be just sort of smeared over. And when you come to, 
face to face with sin that is out for your destruction and you realize that the sin is no longer something that you can just manage on your own or that you can just sort of have in the back of your mind and then keep living you know, your life to the best of your ability and, and sort of shrug it off, that, that it's not going to work. No, you got to go after that thing with everything that you've got. You don't just, can't, you don't just shrug off cancer when you get a cancer diagnosis. You do the work of treatment where you're trying to eradicate every single cell that is out to multiply and destroy you. You see, uh, you see this with one of King David's descendants, a guy named King Josiah, who came generations later. And King Josiah, even though he was really young, he led Israel through sort of a national repentance. They became aware of their national sin, and they, they went after it together. And so I would encourage you this week to spend some time reading through 2 Kings chapter 23 and see what Israel's expression of repentance looked like. But what Josiah basically did, he, he came face to face with the law of God and he realized just how wrong they were living, how far off course Israel had got. And so he, he demanded that everything that Israel had been giving themselves to that wasn't God was to be destroyed. So all of the instruments of idolatry that had been brought into the temple were, were being removed from the temple. But here's the thing. It wasn't just removing the instruments and kind of shipping them away or selling them off to other nations to make money. No, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take them out. I want you to destroy them. Then I want you to burn them. Then I want you to take the ashes and ground it into powder. And then I want you to take those ashes that are now powder to a different place and dump them out somewhere else. And they were like is that necessary? And he was like, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And then he looked out and he saw up on the hills, all of these Asherah poles, all of these, these symbols of their idolatry and their wickedness. He said, tear those things down. I want you to break them apart. I want you to burn them. I want you to ground up the ashes. I want you to turn it into a powder. I want you to go dump the powder somewhere else. And they were like, really, do we have to do that? Yes, we are going to do that right now. On and on and on. And so they're like, removing everything. And then he looks out and he sees that a graveyard had been put in an unholy place where it was not supposed to be. And he was like, who has been burying people here all along? Okay, I want you to take all of the bones that are in these tombs. I want you to bring them out. I want you to break them apart, set them on fire, take the ashes, ground them into powder and take them somewhere else. He was purging Israel of all of its idolatry. This is the image that God wants us to have when it comes to addressing the very real stuff that is within us. He's saying we're not going to leave any symbols out there that remind us of the past of sin. We're going to destroy them and get rid of them. We're going to acknowledge our national sin and every monument to every wickedness that we have committed together collectively, we are going to tear down and remove and cast out because we don't want that shadow over us anymore. Amen? Okay, verse 10, uh, verse, verse 10 through 12, he then moves on to recreation. He says, recreate me and restore me. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Make me new, God. 
Take this cold heart and make it tender again. Take what has been defiled and make it pure. Take my life that has been marred by sin and has all of the scars from the world on it and make it useful in your kingdom. You see, the sin in David's life was meant to destroy him and to take him out of the call that God had on his life. God had very specific purposes and dreams for King David. And sin was trying to derail him and and keep him from those purposes. And the same thing is happening for each and every one of us. And, And it manifests in these lies that we tell ourselves where we say, God, I can't do anything radical for you. I'm disqualified. Jesus, I couldn't give my life to you in this way, or I couldn't go serve you in this way. I'm too jacked up. I'm too much of a mess. Look at this, all of the junk that is in my past. But David cries out for a new heart, for a new fresh chance to be restored to all that God has meant for him. You see, no sin can disqualify you from God's love or God's purpose in your life. He is in the redemption business. Now, that said, obviously, that is not to say that there won't be real consequences for sin because sin not only breaks down our relationship with God, but it breaks down our relationships with each other. And when we sin against other people and we come to repent, it doesn't mean that all of that is just wiped away and that everything is back good as new. There's a process of healing. There's a process of redemption, forgiveness, repentance that needs to happen in human relationships as well. But when we read David's words, create in me a clean heart, a pure heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me, At the very least, he is saying here that we are crying out to God and saying, give me a new heart, a new nature, new desires, so that as I go seeking to rebuild these relationships, I am right before you. And I'm doing it according to the power of the Holy Spirit with the fruit of the Spirit at work in my life. Amen? Finally, David ends with praise. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Even in the midst of David's repentance, he still delights in praising God. He rejoices in salvation and in God's mercy. He doesn't just grovel like a worm saying, I am so pathetic. I'm so gross. I'm so the worst. He says, but you're so good and I can enjoy you and celebrate you. You see, worship, I believe, is meant to be the outflow of our repentance. You see, when King Josiah led the people of Israel to to burn and ground down and break apart and scatter the ashes, and he did all of that as their national repentance, do you know what they did at the very end? They held a Passover feast. And the Bible actually says that that Passover feast, that there has never been a Passover with such rejoicing and celebration as that year when they returned to God. That's actually meant to be what we do. We come out of repentance rejoicing in the goodness of God. We celebrate and we revel in his grace, his kindness. It leads us into repentance and his mercy. He washes us clean and makes us new. And there is nothing that is more exciting or worth celebrating than the one who has been broken by sin being restored by grace. And here's the thing that the Bible teaches. It says that you will fill, you need to fill the void of the sin that has been burned out of you with something. God designed that void when he takes that sin and he removes it out of your life. 
He has designed praise and worship to be the thing that fills its place. You see, Jesus, when he's talking about uh, how to do deliverance ministry and casting out a demon from somebody, he says that if you cast out a demon from somebody, but you don't fill the space that the demon was in with the Holy Spirit, then that demon's going to go find a whole bunch of his friends and come back even angrier and fill that space even more aggressively. And the same is true with our repentance. If we remove the sin that is in our life, if we remove the sin that is in our life and we... um, but we don't actually fill that space with something that is from God, then chances are that sin's going to come back and fill that void again. Or it's going to find something else that's going to fill that void. And I believe that that is what praise and worship is for. It's meant to draw, it's meant to heal the wound from the removed sin. We're going to land the plane now. So we're just about done. It has been a difficult year. Has it not? Is anybody tired of me saying that over and over again? Um, People come up to me and they say things like, oh, I heard a pastor say that it's been a really tough year to be a pastor. Totally has. It's been a tough year to be a human. So, like, we're all in this together. And for many of us, it's been a traumatic season. And if we're honest, I think that each one of us in this room have looked for some way to cope with the year that we've been through. To cope with boredom, to cope with anger, or fear, or loss, or a hundred other things that, have, that we've been experiencing. And much of our coping has been an opportunity to sow sin into our lives. And for some of us, those things are very obvious. Things like addictions to food, or to alcohol, or to drugs, or something like that. Or maybe we're trying to cope by going to things like pornography or a digital affair or online addiction to gambling or piling up debt from online shopping or just yelling at our kids or our spouse or our dog or somebody. And it's like we're coping. We're holding this thing together with tape. And for others, the seeds that have been sown were maybe a little bit more subtle. Endless doom scrolling on social media, reading the news, and, and just feeling like you're getting, you're, you're getting washed in outrage culture over and over again. Or binge-watching shows that just numb the soul and sow little bits of immorality or violence into our lives. Or comparison and envy on social media. You see, all sin is on a mission of destruction. And God's invitation to us is to repent before these things take us any further down a path that destroys us. He's calling out to us, not with guilt and shame for what we've been doing over this last year or even more. He's calling out to us an invitation to say, come out of that and experience the true life that I have made you for. That is going to end in your destruction. Not because I will destroy you for it, but because it is designed to destroy you in itself. He cries out a warning that this drift will end badly but that in him we can have life and peace and purpose. I think that this is where the language of Psalm 51 is so important for us. 
It helps to locate us, or for us to locate ourselves in the process of repentance. It helps to remind us of who God is as we are dealing with the reality that's within our hearts. It gives us language of intensity to remind us of how severely this stuff needs to be dealt with in our own lives. It gives us courage to not quit when it's painful and to keep the love and grace of God in front of us the whole way through. And I believe that today is the day where we can let go of some of those things. We can be rid of them and experience freedom and life and peace with God in his kingdom. Amen? Amen.